0: Welcome to the Teaching Ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message: You will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fBCevansville.com.: What is the gospel worth? In a world of sorrows, the gospel is your one comfort. In a world of deaths, it alone. life, even eternal life. Everywhere you look, you know that you see fears and anxieties crouching, ready to get you. Maybe you've come here this morning thinking very prominently even during worship. That's okay. But even during worship, you're thinking about the fears and anxieties that are lurking, waiting to pounce and ruin your life. The gospel comes, puts leashes upon them all says they can't hurt you the gospel is the smile that says to you this morning listen everything is going to be okay millions of people today will give up their families their friends their jobs they'll give up comforts they will labor they will give up ease They will give up their freedom for substances like drugs or alcohol that can give to them one, one millionth of all of the comforts that the gospel can give to you. And it's yours for free if you believe in Christ. There will be other people today who will spend their whole lives married to a career. They are going to surrender so many of their happinesses to put in that little bit extra of overtime at the office, and they will do this decade after decade to bodily exhaustion, to the death of their family, all seeking a sort of honor, a fulfillment that if they would turn to the gospel that you have... They could find 10,000 times more honor now and into eternity, 10,000 times more fulfillment. That's what the gospel is, and that's what the gospel offers to you. What is the gospel worth? If the gospel could be made a product and you could market it, it would be worth more than any other product on the market. What eternal peace, eternal happiness, a life after death, the promise of the end of hostilities with God, the acceptance of God as your Father, the assurance that all things will end well for you no matter what takes place temporarily now? If you could really sell that in the form of a pill, you would make billions of dollars. God doesn't sell it. He gives it away by handfuls. It's the gospel. What is the gospel worth? To what shall we compare it? It is, in the words of Jesus, quote, like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covers up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Buy truth and do not sell it. This is the truth, the gospel. And if you were to go and sell all that you have to get the gospel, you would not be a fool. As the missionary Jim Elliott said, who died for the gospel when he was just one year younger than I am, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, that is everything you have, to gain what he cannot lose. What is the gospel worth? to you. Or as Paul will tell us in chapter 3 of this very letter, for Christ's sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That is what the gospel was worth to Paul. Thursday morning when you hear the dump truck drive by outside and pick up your bin and dump its contents into itself, do you grieve? Are you broken hearted? Are you sad to lose your rubbish? That is the way that Paul thought of everything else he had in the world. Cars, family, house, prestige, honor, position, job, all of the things that are prominent in your mind. It was like Thursday morning, dumped away for Paul, truly. And he said, that's okay, it's rubbish, it's trash compared to what I have in the gospel. What is the gospel worth? Paul speaks of the gospel in this way. It is, quote, the gospel of the grace of God, or again, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, in which is revealed how you can become right with God forever, or. The gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or not man's gospel, but God's gospel. Or the gospel of our salvation. Or the gospel of peace. The word of truth proclaimed in all creation. Which comes not just in word, but in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The eternal gospel. The gospel of God and of His Christ. What is that gospel worth? What is it worth to you? Everything. And that is why we have this text at the end of Philippians chapter 1, among other reasons. Paul is about to appeal to you to live a life that shows that the gospel is worth more than everything else you have. He, in other words, will say, live worthy of the gospel. How do you do that? How do you live your life that shows the gospel is of immense worth? It's good of you to ask. Let's look. Philippians chapter 1, we're starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel Christ, So that whether I come and see you, Paul in prison in Rome, talking to the Philippian Christians, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Listen, you are either right now living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, or you are not. And when we say worthy of the gospel of Christ, you might think, oh, I've got to live so that I merit or I earn the goodness of the gospel to myself. That nullifies the whole gospel. That just ruins it. When you hear the word worthy, don't think that. That's not true. What Paul is saying instead is, here's the gospel in all of its worth and all of its glory. And here is your life. And the way, the manner of life, the way you live your life needs to be brought up so that it corresponds to how glorious the gospel is. That's what he means worthy of the gospel. You're not earning it. Let me make that clear one more time. You're not earning it. But you can live your life in a way that shows how great it is that Christ has earned it for you. And that's what he's appealing you to do. In other words, it is like the old fast food commercial. You got the large bun and you open it and someone asks, where's the meat? And Paul is saying, don't live that kind of life where you have this glorious gospel but inside there's no substance of life to you. You live your life like anyone else would live their life. It's not clear at all that the gospel is of worth because people who don't know the gospel live better lives than you. Paul's saying, don't let that be true. Your life needs to correspond to how great the gospel really is. You may wonder, well, how do I know if I'm doing that right now? That's why we have these verses. Paul is going to tell us in detail How you can know you're living a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ because, and this may not be a surprise to you, verses 27 to 30 are all more or less a single sentence. And that's what Paul's been doing through chapter one in his exuberance. And this sentence is focused on what? How you know you are living your life worthy of the gospel. That's the command, everything else is description to help us know how we are doing it. And what we're going to find is that Paul says, You can know you're living up to the gospel if these two things are true of you. First, if you are struggling for the sake of the gospel. And secondly, if you are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Struggling, suffering, they're even S's for you, there you go. And if you are doing those two things, you are living worthy of the gospel. It remains for me to demonstrate that, so you know I'm not just blowing out hot air here. So let's look then through the text, first, struggling for the sake of the gospel. What is that and is it happening in your life? Like I said, this is a single sentence and so I want to give you something of the structure of it to demonstrate that these two things indeed are living worthy of the gospel. So if you begin the text here, he says, only, meaning, this is the main thing. He'd just been talking about his own affairs, his own life, and how it's working out in his imprisonment for the gospel. And he's hoping to come to the Philippians. But he says, put that aside for a second. I want to focus on you. Only, focus on this, only, let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In terms of structure, that is the primary command of this entire passage. But now Paul's going on to define it for us because that seems a little vague. Of course, we all want to do that, but how do you know if you are? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that. Right now, Paul is going to, he's restating what it means to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you're living worthy of the gospel, then I'm going to hear this about you. Do you see that? So he's going to just simply restate what he means by living worthy of the gospel. And it is that you are standing firm in one spirit. Pause. Living worthy of the gospel... If you're doing it, Paul will hear you're standing firm. So standing firm is simply another way of saying living worthy of the gospel. But again, while that's helpful, tells us something. It means we're not sitting down, reclining, resting, chilling on the gospel. You're standing firm. We already see suggests some strength, but it's still a little vague. So now what Paul does, having restated this, is he gives us two clear ways that you stand firm, that is, that you live worthy of the gospel. And in Greek, they're called participles. They're usually I-N-G words for us. So we have striving, suffering. But they are, if you like grammars, fine. They are modifying standing firm. That just means that they are explaining to us in this case what it means to stand firm. which we just said is the same as what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel, okay? You don't have to get caught up in those details, but I'm just trying to show you. I'm not making up the structure of the sermon just because they're S's and they work nicely. This is what Paul's saying. If you want to live worthy of the gospel, these are the S's, the two participles. And one is striving or struggling for the gospel that he talks about here. And then he's going to talk about suffering for the gospel, And that is why the first point of this sermon is struggling for the gospel. Are you doing it? Verse 27 again. Here's the first participle, first way you live worthy. With one mind, he uses the word, ESV has the word striving. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We say faith of the gospel just means the content of the gospel, what it means. But he says you're living worthy of the gospel if you are striving for it. This means, like I've said, struggling. This so is just like what he said in standing firm. It suggests you're not just relaxing in the gospel, but instead there is an energy, when you hear the word struggle, and I'm not talking about merely we think of struggling with sin, and it just means you're sinning, you know. We use that terminology to feel better. Maybe sometimes. Sorry. Sometimes. But if you're really struggling with your sin, you're fighting it. You're wrestling against it. And he's using this word striving, struggling, to suggest the energy that is involved. I could perhaps give you a modern example of this. If I highlight it. Today, If a young man usually wants to marry a woman, he's going to set up a proposal and get on one knee and always present her with what? With a ring. Now, in many cases, what is the ring made of? Silver, gold, diamonds? Very valuable materials. Is this because most young men who are proposing right out of college are just independently wealthy and they love to throw their money away on gold and diamonds? (laughs) No. It might be the most expensive thing that they've bought. So you think that's an unusual custom that we've developed? Is this just because we hate young men and want to torture them and encourage them to buy these very expensive things? No. 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 This custom, which I'm not going to defend or attack, okay, but this custom, if we look at it, what does it communicate to us that this young man, when he decides in his mind, I'm going to propose, then he looks at his bank account, goes, oh no, and then starts brainstorming, how am I going to get a ring? At that point, a struggle ensues. unless you're wealthy, a struggle ensues as you now have to labor as a young man. You've got to figure it out. It's the only time in my life I almost gave plasma. (laughs) You've got to figure out. Sorry, it's true. Confession. It's you are struggling. You are struggling and laboring and doing whatever you have to do in order to acquire the ring. And you might just think, well, this is some modern practice that's just a marketing ploy that's getting the diamond makers all this money. You're half right. However, the earliest instances we have of people using rings for romantic love that developed later into betrothals is ancient Rome, a few hundred years after Jesus, and the materials were typically gold. Why has it always been that we torture this poor class of young men by requiring them to purchase something so valuable? Because it demonstrates the love that they have, that struggle to acquire that and then to give it, demonstrates I am willing to struggle for you. I am willing to labor because you're worthy of that. You are that valuable in my sight that I would do that. And let me ask you, the sacrifices you've made to get a ring for your loved one or wife if you're married, how do they compare to the struggle and the sacrifices you have made for the gospel? That is Paul's point right here. That's struggling for the gospel together. That's how he says it. Striving together. This shows that the gospel is valuable. That is of immense worth because you are willing to struggle. Are you willing to struggle for the gospel? Do you know what that means? Have you done that? Have you struggled against your sin trying to live a holy life for the glory of the gospel? Have you struggled with Losing the acceptance of others at work or at school because you tell them you're a Christian or because you share the gospel with them? Have you suffered that loss? Do you contemplate upon your bed how you may advance the knowledge of the gospel? How you may increase in holiness to demonstrate the goodness of it? How you may demonstrate acts of love to others to show them that being a Christian is good and right and beautiful? Do you think in your mind in your free time how you may better communicate the gospel to those who do not know it? Do you contemplate if God is calling you to missions that you would struggle and labor and prepare and train and get the ticket and sell everything and go overseas and share the gospel? You might not be called to that detail, but you're called to this generally. If you are chilling in the gospel... You are not living worthy of the gospel. If you can live your week and not think about the gospel until you come here Sunday morning, you're not living worthy of the gospel. To live worthy of the gospel first is to strive, to struggle, to labor. This is one of the reasons that the easy believism, if you know what that is, that makes up a lot of modern American Christianity today, just doesn't work. Because it's so cheap. This is what even Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in Germany who died during World War II at the hand of the Nazis, and he called this a cheap grace. When you can say, go about day by day by day suffering nothing for the sake of the gospel, not laboring, not striving, just living your life basically as an unbeliever, but saying, oh, but I'm forgiven because I prayed a prayer or I signed something. Or I did something at one point in my life, it's made zero difference, but it's grace and I'm forgiven. And Bonhoeffer rightly called that a cheap grace. That is not worthy of the gospel. If your life doesn't look any different from before you knew Christ, it's simply because you don't know Christ. But even as believers, there is a way to autopilot through Christianity where you try to find the paths of least resistance. This was somewhat like back in England when Henry VIII brought about what we now call Anglicanism. It was made the belief system, the Protestant belief system of England at the time, and we're grateful for that. Protestant is a true right belief. But after Henry VIII and Edward came after after this, it changed Very shortly together, after every several years, a new monarch would come to the throne like Queen Mary, and she was Catholic. So now, England is more Catholic. But then she would die, and another monarch would come, and now we're Protestant. And there were many pastors who, quite conveniently, became Protestant and Catholic just at the right time. Can you believe it? They didn't want to sacrifice anything for the gospel. They're not striving. They're not laboring. Are you striving and laboring for the gospel? This is what Paul calls us to. If that seems like pretty exhausting, and it is. Notice too, though, there's a comfort added in because, see the text. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We said early on that one of the major themes of this letter is unity, and here it is also in our striving, in our struggling for the gospel. You don't do it by yourself. You might say right now, I'm just not gifted as an evangelist. Listen, I'm not really gifted as an evangelist. I'm not fantastic at it. I have to do it. You have to do it. And we do it together because the gifts of others help us in our weakness. That's his point here. You're side by side. We're all fulfilling our part, but it is a labor and we're all contributing. Every part of the body. So I need you. You need me. We both need that person who is good at evangelism. And together we surround unbelievers in love and share the gospel and show them what Christianity means and lead them to the Lord. Side-by-side striving. So effort but it's effort together and when you fall I pick you up and when I'm falling you pick me up and we continue forward. Paul says that's worthy of the gospel and nothing short of that is worthy of the gospel. This of course is one reason that divisions in the church are grievous because they hinder the gospel. If we are called to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, then if we don't strive side by side but against each other, what does it mean for the gospel? It's a hindrance to it. Therefore, one part of your laboring, striving, struggling, if you want something very concrete, what does this mean? One part of it is you struggling with your own heart that gets embittered at other people sitting in this room right now because they're different, or they've offended you, or they lean in different directions for you, or some of the things they do don't make sense, or they smell bad, or anything. Whatever the reason is, you have in your heart a bit of a barrier against them, and you think, I'll just let it be. No, you can't. You all your life, beginning today, have to make unceasing war on whatever sin there is in you that brings about division between your brothers and sisters. If you just let it be, it ruins our testimony to the gospel that at least hinders it. We strive side by side. Can you stand by my side? So if there's an issue and I've offended, you've got to come to me and we've got to talk about it and hash this out, or if it's just in your own heart, you have to fight it. This is a part of our striving and laboring so that we can do it together side by side, for the faith of the gospel. And if you don't do that, and you just gravitate toward the people who don't offend you and who are most like you, then you're a fantastic country club. You're not a church. We are striving together. This is what it means for us to be worthy of the gospel. And it's together. By this, said our Savior, by this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And we want people to know we're his disciples because we want them to trace the line back to him as our discipler. So this is part of your struggling and striving is against your own sin so that we can continue it in unity. And you know what? It's hard, and it's exhausting, but the gospel is worth it. Does the gospel not deserve it? The gospel deserves it. So great is the gospel that if it called you to cut off your legs, it'd be worth it. But instead it's calling you to cut off your sin and strive side by side with people who love you for the sake of the gospel. Can you do that? take your shovel and go bury your old grievances, together for the gospel here. So number one, what does it mean for you to live worthy of the gospel? It is to stand firm, but what does it mean to stand firm first by striving together or struggling, laboring, struggling? But there's a second participle that begins verse 28, and therefore a second part of living worthy, and that is now suffering. Verse 28, and, second part, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is not the beginning of a new sentence in the Greek, but in the English. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, got that down, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. (laughs) Clarification. This is not a command for you to suffer. Do you see the verb suffer? (laughs) Is that in there anywhere? No. It's actually just a given that if you are a Christian, and as Paul says, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You will suffer. It's inevitable. It will happen. So, I'm not telling you go out there and suffer. You're already doing it and will do it more and more as you are faithful in the gospel. So, what is actually commanded? How do you live worthy? And not frightened. To be frightened would be unworthy. To not be frightened is worthy of the gospel. We have to be really clear here, the kind of suffering we're talking about, because everyone suffers, and not all suffering is virtuous. Peter tells us this in his letter. He says, for what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And he says again later in that letter, let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. So... Many Christians suffer for being obnoxious, I said it, you knew it was true, for being obnoxious and call it persecution, but what's being persecuted isn't the gospel in them, it's the obnoxiousness in them, and may God prevent that in us. We are talking about suffering for the gospel, where you are living a godly upright life and displaying love to others. And then comes the point where you introduce Christ into the conversation and now they think less of you, and now they avoid you or are openly hostile against you. That's the kind of suffering we're talking about. And if you want to live worthy of the gospel, you experience that, and what do you do? Go home and have a pity party. It's just not fair. It's not fair. You know what else was not fair? When they crucify the innocent Savior by which we are saved. And therefore, this is what you're called to, to suffer unjustly. And how do you respond? You're not afraid. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is the kind of boldness that we saw Paul just praying for with his upcoming Roman trial. This is his hope and his expectation that he won't be put to shame but that with full courage, Christ will be magnified. He means that he'll speak with boldness, that he won't shrink back in shame or in fear when it comes time to speak of Christ in the gospel. And that is what you must do if you'll live worthy of the gospel. You don't have to be a great orator. You don't have to come up behind a pulpit. You don't have to go stand on the roadside and yell it to passing cars. You can. You don't have to do that but you do have to speak the gospel. And when people don't like you doing that, then you have to just keep doing it. Not to be obnoxious, but because you're not frightened. If they intimidate you, if they ostracize you, then you keep doing it unfrightened. This, Paul says in our text, is a clear sign to them. This being if they try to hurt you, or humiliate you for the gospel, and you're fine with it, you're not afraid. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Why should people treating you like trash for the gospel be a clear sign to anyone of anything? (laughs) Because if you respond to persecution this way, it's okay. I'm not frightened it's alright, you demonstrate that the gospel is worth it. You prove the value of the gospel, listen, you're claiming some outrageous things, I hope you're aware of this, if you're confessing Christ, you are claiming that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the single monotheistic being who created all things, your claim is that He knows you and has given his own son, one with himself in being, to suffer horribly so that you could be forgiven and not punished by him by his just wrath. Now he embraces you as a father. God embraces you as a father and has promised you all will work out in the end, and you are given an eternal paradise. That's a lot to claim. (laughs) It's a lot to claim. How do you prove that? Here's one way when people begin to ridicule you about the pie in the sky you follow, you're not frightened. You don't shrink back. You are bold. You know it's true. Not frightened by your opponents. The reason you're not frightened was really given in verse 28, because he says four at the beginning of 29. So it points us back to 28, talking about suffering, and that from God, meaning when you suffer, you know God is in it. In fact, you see it as a, sorry, it's not me saying this, it's the text, so blame the text, but this is what the text says. You suffer persecution, you're humiliated, and the text says, you have been granted this. Using a word from which we also get grace. This is a favor from God himself to you. That's why you stand there as they ridicule you and you're fine. Because this is coming from God. What did Jesus say? Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. When people revile you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad. <laughs> That's most unusual. It's because your reward in heaven is great. This comes from God. He's not outside of it. He's present. So all the world around you wants you to feel embarrassed about being so backward and believing this old revivalistic sort of evangelical belief from the 1700s, this gospel, This old outdated thing we've moved past, they want you to feel humiliated, but you don't. You don't feel humiliated about it. And even the suffering you're getting, it is coming from God. And so you can say with the psalmist, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can the man in the cubicle next to you do to you? Or you heed the command, In Isaiah 51, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Then it follows after, who are you that you're afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? Unless you have some peculiar grassophobia, you don't think much of the grass. It lives, it dies, it's gone, and that's the prophet's point. If the fear of other people and their opinion of you is preventing you from sharing the gospel openly, telling people they can have eternal life through Christ and what He's accomplished on the cross, why do you regard man whose breath is in his nostrils? The Bible says to you that in 100 years that person will be dead and God will live on. Don't fear that person, fear God. When the lost see your attitude of boldness in the face of the worst they can give, it suggests to them, you might be right, after all. It is a clear sign. Whether they see it or not, who knows, but you'll see it at least. A clear sign to you of your salvation that this gospel is true, but if it's true, to them of destruction. For the gospel also warns of judgment for those who reject it. That's what Paul's saying here. And even just in passing, this last comment of Paul says, you're engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and you now hear I still have. The point he's making there is, again, this is all of us in this together. Hopefully, we can all be ridiculed together for believing such odd and backwards sorts of things as the gospel itself. And this is all meant to help you suffer. Suffer. If you want to live worthy for the gospel, you've got to embrace suffering for the gospel. Physical suffering, but especially in our context, more the emotional type of suffering, being shamed and humiliated by your family, coworkers, or other students when they learn that you're one of those conservative Christians. Think as a way of example of the great Charles Simeon. He was a pastor in Cambridge, England back in the 17 and 1800s he was called to preach at Trinity Church this was the church the students at Cambridge would go to as a very prestigious church he went there in 1782 excited he was the only one excited <laughs> none of the parishioners almost none of the parishioners wanted him as their pastor Many of them were not converted. They weren't genuine believers. And he began to preach conviction of sin and the greatness of the gospel and that your life has to be worthy of the gospel. And as you can imagine, the unbelievers there and maybe some of the believers were not at all pleased. They, in fact, had someone else they had wanted to be their pastor. So that's never a fun experience for a pastor to step into. But he did in 1782. And for the next 54 years, almost unceasingly, he faced Massive opposition from his people. His parishioners would literally lock the doors. (laughs) They had the keys, so they would lock the doors for the evening meeting. He'd show up and the doors were locked. One time he even hired a locksmith to come and pick the lock so that he could get in for the service. When that didn't work, then the pews back in that day had doors on the edges of them and they began locking the pews so no one could sit down while he was preaching. So he went out on his meager budget and bought more chairs to put in the corners for people to sit, and the church wardens came and took those and threw them in the (laughs) churchyard. I'm sure he felt very welcome by that. The students of Cambridge who were required to attend there, many of them not believers, hated his preaching. In fact, they began spreading slanderous rumors about him to malign him, saying that he looks like he's holy, but really behind the scenes he's an unrighteous man and ungodly. If any of the students came to Christ through the preaching of Charles Simeon, which happened, then the other students would ridicule them and call them Sims, for Simeon, saying they fell into Simeonism. At least one of these who was under his sway was refused advancement academically because of following these teachings, really just the gospel. Other students would ostracize those who came to know Christ through his ministry, and on and on and on it goes. And this not for the first five or ten years or twelve years. This was decades of ministry, and it continued on for decades. And every week, Charles Simeon, hated by most of the people he was speaking to, would get up into a pulpit like this and would preach the gospel of Christ unadulterated to them, seeking their good and their salvation. How do you do that? You can do that for a month. You could do that for a year. Like some of these diets, you could do anything for a month. You could do that for a month. You could do it for a year or maybe five. He did it for more than 50. How do you do that? He revealed his secret after 49 years of his ministry while he was still ministering. He was 71 years old and a friend of his asked him, how have you put up with so much junk for so long? And this was Simeon's reply. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. What is the gospel worth? A little striving? A little suffering? Is it worth your life? Is it worth you who are not a reader picking up your Bible to read it? Or, I know it's pushing, a good, small Christian book to help you in your walk? Is it worth that? Is the gospel worth that or no? Is the gospel worth you inviting a neighbor to church to hear the gospel? Is the gospel worth you taking that first step? You know the feeling when you're there in the conversation right on the cusp of introducing Christ into it with an unbeliever and you're starting to get jitters. Are you going to do it? You don't know how they're going to respond. You have to ask, is the gospel worth it? This could end whatever friendship may have been developing. Is the gospel worth that? Is the gospel worth you increasingly in our culture looking more and more backwards, less and less intellectual and elite? Is it worth you surrendering up any credential, any prestige you might have among the seculars? Is the gospel worth that? For you clinging to Christ and making him known? Is the gospel worth risking a lost person you respect disrespecting you because you believe the gospel and share it with them? Is the gospel worth you striving, you getting up off the couch and laboring and contemplating how you will make this gospel known? Is it worth it? If it's not worth it, sit back down, watch your show. But is it worth you getting up off of that couch and making a schedule when you've got children and you're exhausted? Is it worth you still doing that? Putting it on the calendar? You're going to go meet with lost people, hoping to share the gospel with them? You're going to invite them into your home, which of course this needs fixed and that and this isn't what it should be yet? Are, is it good? Is it worth you risking them judging you for that? Is it worth you trying to settle disputes with believers so that you can advance the gospel? Is it worth you bearing your own petty preferences and living in love with people who are very different from you so that you can share the gospel together? Is it worth you giving your time and attention to prayer so that the gospel you share might have a power behind it? Is it worth you when you lead someone to the Lord now investing your time and your energy in them? Is it worth you when you are sharing the gospel with someone who is not so savory and perhaps a bit manipulative? Is it worth you risking getting into that relationship so that they might know Christ? Is it worth you packing up all you have, selling the rest, going overseas, endangering your entire family that those who've never heard of Jesus can hear of Jesus from your lips? Is it worth learning another language? What is the gospel worth? Think of your, I'm not trying to emotionally manipulate you, okay, but this is the text. Just go into your bank statement and just look down at the charges, the subscriptions. They're not sin in themselves. They're fine. But you are saying with every purchase what each of those items is worth. What is the gospel worth? What does it cost you? Like the famed Count Zinzendorf, who was a great part of the momentum of the modern missions movement preceding it, poured out his life to make Christ known. But when he was a young man, before he knew Christ, he came into an art museum and saw a painting of Jesus. Sorry to Amy, she would not like that painting. (laughs) But saw a painting of Jesus with woe on his face, a crown of thorns upon his head. And underneath was this inscription in Latin, Zinzendorf read, this have I suffered for you, now what will you do for me? I'm not trying to twist your arm into just trying harder. But I'm saying the gospel is this. Does it look that way in your life by your laboring and your willingness to suffer for it? And if it does, then let us sing together in our hearts at all times. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. Let's pray. Jesus I thank you for what you've provided us right here that you show us when our cold hearts are too cold to move up to the greatness of the gospel then you set it with a clear display before our eyes show us that there is a way to live worthy of the gospel, and not. Lord, I plead with you that you would help us to risk failure for the sake of the gospel, just as we do in work and other areas of life, that we would risk fatigue for the gospel like we do in family and other areas of life, that we would risk displeasure of others for the gospel, like we do all the time for the sake of other earthly matters. Lord, let us have this mind among ourselves that the gospel is the greatest thing that we have in our life, and that if we must die for it, we die for it, and if we must suffer for it, we suffer for it, and if we must risk the disapproval of every other person in our life then we will say though no good none go with me yet i will follow none turning back lord let us set the gospel before our face like this and make our foreheads flint and teach us lord with emery harder than flint to share the gospel to speak boldly as we ought in every opportunity that we have and to make opportunities where there are none and to share the gospel that others might be brought to a knowledge of you and might join us not just in an earthly fellowship but on into eternity singing your praises and enjoying paradise rather than perdition rather than the flames of hell. Lord, give us that compulsion that drives us and by your gospel, please give rest to our souls but to nothing else.